0: morning everybody i'm gonna go ahead and open with a word of prayer here and and uh we'll give everybody a chance to kind of get settled and uh and we'll start with the class this morning so let's uh let's pray Heavenly we follow we thank you for this morning lord we just ask your blessing upon this day uh, lord uh, we thank you for the, the beautiful day that it is and the beautiful spring that you've been giving us uh, lord we uh just pray that you would be glorified in everything that we do today and In the Sunday school hour and in the uh, service to follow, we just pray for everyone involved and we just pray that uh, it would be pleasing to you what we do here today. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Revelation 21. Uh, today we are going to try to cover the rest of the chapter. Now I realize it is a long chapter, it's 27 verses, uh, so we'll see if we can get that much covered today or not. We are, are rapidly uh, approaching the end of our Revelation study. Uh, it, it, it's been two years, uh, and so it's been, a, it's been a fun study, it's been, been a, a great experience, uh, uh, but we are, are coming toward the end, and uh, so we have one more chapter after this, and uh, so we uh, will we sh- we'll be done by the end of this month, uh, and so we're kind of going to see what we can, how much we can cover here today. I want to start by looking at verses 9 through 14 of chapter 21, and we are going to see here. Uh, the, the, the New Jerusalem, the, the holy city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, and, and really, this is, this is one of the most triumphant moments in, in the Bible. In fact, you could argue that, that, that this chapter uh, in particular and also you know, the first part of chapter 22 are really the most triumphant moments in the Bible, that everything everything in in all of scripture leads to to this moment okay and so we see the appearance here, and thank you again, Hunter. See the appearance here of uh, of the new Jerusalem kind of coming from God uh, out of of heaven. Now, the first observation here is we see this angel. Now, I actually thought this was very interesting because if you remember, the last of the judgments were, were the bold judgments. So, it's interesting that the angel who gave the last... Uh, you know, had the bold judgments, poured out the last judgments on the earth that closed out essentially, uh, you know, human history as we know it. It's the same angel that gave the vision of the new Jerusalem. I, I, I just found that really cool. Uh, you know, that, that this angel, in some ways you could say this angel had the, uh, you know, the, the, the sad duty Of of bringing the last of the of the bold judgments about, even though that you know they they were just judgments, it still is sad that mankind ever got to that point. Uh, But you know, at at, at the same time, this is this is the angel that also gets to introduce John to the coming of the of the new Jerusalem, and so uh, this this angel um you know it it says it says it came to john and said come and i will show you the bride the wife of the lamb now we discussed this last week but i want to talk a little bit about this again in what way is this the bride the wife of the lamb as we've talked about last week the consistently in in the new testament especially the the, you know the church is is considered the bride of, of of christ in the old testament uh and again something we kind of talked about last week the in the old testament the both uh israel as a united nation was considered the wife of jehovah uh and then when the nation split into two kingdoms israel and judah were called the wives of jehovah and so that language of god's people as as his bride uh is consistently used throughout scripture however here uh, you know, we are told that, you know, I'm going to show you the wife, the, the, the bride of the Lamb, but we're going to see a city. So in what way is this city the, 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 the wife or the bride of, of, of the Lamb? Well, and again, we, we did talk about this a little last week, but I want to read you something here, uh, you know, shortly. But, you know, there's kind of three ways that people tend to look at this. Some look at it like, well, you know, they're both the brides of the Lamb. The city is the bride of the Lamb, and the church is the bride of the Lamb. Others look at the city as purely, you know, metaphoric. The city is the church. And and they're using the, the, the description of a city just, you know, to have a magnificent description of what the church and the saints of God are going to be like. And, and people will point to the fact that the church is also described throughout the New Testament as a building. You know, that, that, that we are, are the, the, not only the bride of Christ, but the building of Christ. And so there are, are many, many scholars, conservative scholars, who do not believe that there is a literal city. They, they're, they're just saying that God is, is, you know, is using you know, the idea of a city in order to show the magnificence of the bride, of what the saints will be like when the saints are finally everything God wants us to be. He, he'll describe us as this magnificent city, okay? There are others that look at it and they go, well, you know, th- no, this is, if this is just a metaphor, it's a really big metaphor. It's like 27 verses of metaphor. That is probably not likely you know and and so this is a city but it's also the bride it's kind of both because the city will be the place that the bride dwells that you know the bride will live forever in this city with god and so it really is kind of both and so those are kind of the different ways hold on because i'm going to read something here in a second that that's that's kind of the different ways that everybody kind of looks at this. It's either two different brides, one, one bride, just the church, or, you know, one bride essentially, but it's kind of made up of both the church and the city. They're kind of one in the same thing. So, the, you know, the, those are, are the things. Now, let me read kind of an analysis of this by uh, Dr. Osborne in the uh, Baker exegetical commentary, and this may kind of do a better job of kind of answering. You know people's questions on this. It says, in its beauty and joy, the city is like a bride adorned for her husband. In, in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, the church is the bride of the lamb, and her adornment is her righteous deeds. In chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, the adornment uh, fits the normal picture of precious stones worn by a bride. Here, the holy city is like a bride. Uh, possibly echoing Isaiah 54, uh, verses 5 and 6, where Zion is the wife of Yahweh who has been brought back by her husband's love and rebuilt with precious stones. In Isaiah 61, 10, God clothes Israel with garments of salvation as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And in 62, verses 1 through 5, Zion is given a new name, which is kind of the equivalent of Revelation 3:12. Uh, and Yahweh will rejoice as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So that imagery is consistently used uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament, you know, both describing Israel and the, you know, Zion as, as the bride. Okay? There is a debate about the connection between the city and the saints. Is the New Jerusalem the place in which the saints reside? or is it a symbol of the saints themselves? Thuzing says that it is not so much a place as the perfected people themselves, and Gundry argues strongly that John is not describing the eternal dwelling place of the saints, he is describing them and them alone. Thus it describes their future state rather than, than their future home. Mounts connects this with 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Where the believers are the temple of god here they are the city of god visualizing the church in its perfected and eternal state yet while it is possible that john transformed the jewish tradition of an end-time new jerusalem into a symbol of the people themselves that is not required by the text in deutsch's study of the transformation of the images in this text she concludes that john chose this as a contrast To the evil city of babylon the great in order to comfort the afflicted with the promise of the future blessing babylon was both a people and a place and that is the better answer here it is a people in in chapter 21 verses 9 and 10 when the angel uh shows john the new jerusalem as the bride the wife of the lamb and in chapter 21 verses 13 and 14 when the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles are the gates and the foundations of the city. But it is a place in 21.3 where God dwells with his people, and in 21.7 and 8 where the readers either inherit it or face the lake of fire. And in chapter 21, verses 24 and 26, where the glory of the nations are brought into it. In short, it represents heaven as both the saints who inhabit it and their dwelling place. Now, I, I really, I think that is, is the best answer for this conundrum. It makes far more sense than having one or the other or both as two completely different things. Instead, you know, the city and the saints essentially are, are you know, are, are one. It is a true city, but it, that city will be the dwelling place of the saints. It'll be the dwelling place of God's people, of his bride. And in that way, God uses that term bride for both the people and the city that the people inhabit. You know, that really seems to be the best answer uh, to this. Um, It's it's really, you know, it's an amazing thing to think about because we are so far from that place now. But, you know... What will it be like? I mean, I, you know, it's hard to even conjecture on such a thing. But what will it be like to be sinless and continually in the presence of our God? Uh, you know, what will that be like? Uh, you know, we, we can dream on it. We can look forward to it. But, you know, in reality is we cannot imagine it, really. We can't, it, it, you know, we are still in a sinful state and it's beyond us. To imagine what that moment will be like. But we read those passages like in Romans where, and we talked about this a little last week, where, where the, the, the all of creation you know, is like in birth pains, in the pains of labor, waiting for the moment that the children of God are, are revealed. Well, this is that moment where the children of God, all of God's people, are exactly what they are supposed to be. And we'll be magnificent. We'll be perfected into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, I can't, I can't even imagine what that will be like. And how everything that's ever existed, basically, the Bible says, is longing for that moment. Everything leads to that. You know, and, and, and I really, I, I like Osborne's approach, and and, and in fact, uh, you know, Patterson has pretty much exactly the same approach, like, you know, I, that, that, you know, yes, God uses the term bride to describe the city in some places, and the church in other places, and they're all woven into the same you know, same chapter, chapter 21, it's using the term for the, the, the church, the people, and the city, the church, the, the, the city, the, you know, it, he, he weaves them in and out, because remember, we talked about this again last week, that, that that idea of God dwelling with his people is what man has been longing for forever. It's what Eden was like for a short period of time, or however long that was, we have no idea how long, they, you know, they lived in that perfected state in Eden. But, but for, for that short period, whatever it was, you know, mankind had that walk with God, that relationship with God, and everything has been heading back toward that place. That's what God has been, been trying to do, is, is restore everything back to that place. That essentially is what the millennial kingdom did for a thousand years, was give a picture, a snapshot of what that will be. You know, and, and and so that's kind of where we're heading to. And so I really, you know, I, I love kind of the approach that they've taken to that. Now there are many, you know, like I said, many conservative scholars that argue that, you know, that the city is completely a metaphor for the bride. It just, you know, it, it, this is all about about the bride, the church, God's people. Um, but it does seem clear that there is a literal city too, because. You know, like you said, it talks about the nations coming in and out of the of the city, and we'll talk more about that. That's toward the end here today. So, uh, so yeah, that that's kind of. I agree with that approach. I think that is probably the best way to to approach this, Tim. Um. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, this would be that. This would be that place. But again, they would just argue that you know that is just a metaphor for what the people will be you know, that he's essentially going to one day prepare, you know, what the people will ultimately end up being. Uh, And so, you know, there are two different ways that people approach this. It's funny, uh, you know, I I read three commentaries yesterday on this. Two of them essentially agreed with this approach. One of them, Alan Johnson, who's a very conservative scholar, you know, I think a Dallas theological guy, if I'm not mistaken, he took the completely opposite route, and, and he, he said, he, you know, he thought this was completely metaphorical, you know, and so, like I said, you know, people are very different on, on this, uh, but, and in, in, in the end, it, you know, it doesn't matter, we'll have to wait and see, <laughs> you know, one day, uh, thankfully, we'll get to see, and we'll know then for sure, uh, but either way, uh, at, they all agree that in some places, this is a description of, of the people of God in some way. Uh, you know, yes, a literal city too, but also the people. Uh, and think of the, you know, we're going to read here the, this description and how magnificent this description is. And that's what kind of brings me to tears is just the thought that this is what we will be one day. You know, this is God's goal for his bride, for his people, is to be magnificent and perfect and like him someday. That's, you know, that's astonishing to think about, you know. Um, the next kind of thing that we, we see here is, is he says he was carried away in the Spirit, in verse 10, and he carried me away, talking about the angel, in the Spirit to a mountain great and high. Now, again, there, there, this could mean two different things. It could mean that he was literally carried away uh, and the angel carried him away through the Holy Spirit's power to a great, you know, mountain. You know, let's just say Mount Everest. You know, the, the, the angel by the power of the Spirit took John and whisked him away to Mount Everest to the top of the world, you know, to the highest place so he could see this city coming down. The other way to approach it is this happened to him in the Spirit. So it's either it happened to him by the power of the Spirit or it happened to him in the Spirit, uh, as Dr. Patterson kind of pointed out in his commentary. The language is is you know doesn't favor really one over the other. The Greek can be either way. So it, it either he was carried physically to the place by the power of the Holy Spirit or he had basically a vision, a you know a, uh, an out-of-body experience, if you will. His spirit was taken you know, by the Spirit of God to, the, to this high mountain. We don't know. Any way you look at it, either John physically or, or in the Spirit ended up you know, on this high mountain to look at the, the city coming down out of heaven. Uh, he, he said, He showed me the holy city, uh, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And, and we see that, that the city the stress that the city comes from God. Um, again, let me, let me kind of read something here uh, from, from uh, the Baker exegetical commentary. Uh, I, I think this is a beautiful, it's a long kind of description, but I think it, it does a beautiful job of kind of stressing the importance of this moment. Uh, as I said earlier, really everything kind of leads, everything in, in salvation history leads to this moment and what we are seeing at this time it says not just the book of revelation but the whole bible has pointed to this moment since adam and eve lost their place in paradise and sin reigned on the earth the divine plan has prepared for the moment when sin would finally be eradicated and the original purpose of god when he created humankind could come to pass every stage of the apocalypse From the earthly woes of the seven churches to the three judgment septets to the uh, destruction of the great prostitute, uh, Babylon the Great, to the final events of this eon, the return of Christ, the millennium, and the final judgment, the goal has been the new heaven and the new earth. It is especially connected to the letters to the seven churches, for many of the promises given to the overcomers are fulfilled in this vision of the new heaven and new earth. Hemmer says that the perfection of the heavenly Jerusalem is set in implicit contrast to the imperfections of the seven cities of chapters 2 and 3. At the same time, the visions here provide the realization of all the hopes and dreams of the people of God from time immemorial. Many of those hopes have been tainted by sin, examples being material prosperity, status, or pleasure in this life. But what they represent could only be truly fulfilled in heavenly prosperity and joy. Indeed, the reigning on thrones during the millennium, whatever position you take on that issue, is merely a harbinger of the great reality of the new Jerusalem. That is uh, is one of the primary purposes of that temporal and earthly kingdom, to provide a foretaste of of the far greater glory awaiting us. Those whose names were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Those whose names were written in the book of life became the bride of Christ and the inhabitants that made up the new Jerusalem. Most of all, eternity means basking in the presence of God. Moses could not look on the face of God and live. And God uh, mediated his presence to Israel via the Shekinah, which comes from a Hebrew word that means to dwell. Uh, through the pillar of, of uh, pillar and cloud during the Exodus, and, and God's presence above the Ark in the Holy of Holies, that place was so sacred that no one could enter except the High Priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement, as he represented the nation. In the New Jerusalem, the dwelling or the Shekinah of God with His His people uh, uh, is with His people. The fulfillment of all the longings of the saints down through the centuries boring says this is one of the reasons the final destiny of the city of the saints is a city a city is the realization of human community the concrete living out of interdependence as the essential nature of human life for the city as a whole is the community of believers and the temple in which god dwells we are one with one uh, with one another and with god Throughout this, uh, John pulls material from Old Testament images, especially from Isaiah and Ezekiel, to show how the prophets have prepared for this day. Like the Old Testament counterparts, this passage also views heaven as an earthly reality. The holy city descends out of heaven to earth, and the new Eden is also apparently in the new earth. It is difficult once again to know how literally to take this vision. We are not told how the new heaven and the new earth relate to one another, nor how are we to relate to the two new realities. As in so many other instances in the book, we will have to wait and see. The one thing we do know, however, is that the new Jerusalem is the reality that finalizes the hopes of God's people and rewards them for all that they have endured. It also is intended to spur the readers to greater faithfulness in the present. Knowing what, it is, knowing what is at stake. I thought that was a great summary of how important these things that we're seeing actually are. Everything has led to this. This is the completion of the hopes of God's people since time began. Certainly since the fall. Everything restored again. And again, as he said, we don't know exactly what that's all going to look like. We don't know how literal this all is. We're going to have to just experience it one day you know we're going to have to just wait and see and that's okay it'll be worth it uh but but it, it is a magnificent scene uh, and it's described in the most magnificent of ways look at verses 11 through 14 It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and and, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. First thing here, we see the glory of God. You know, and we're going to talk more about this here shortly, but the place shone with the glory of God. It was alighted, at, 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 if you will, by God's very presence. You know, it, it reminds me again of, of the story of, of creation, uh, you know, where, where God said, let there be light. But you notice, he didn't create the, the, the sun and the moon and the stars till later on. So what lit everything? God. Uh, you know, it, 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 the very presence of God, we're going to see shortly that there's no need for a sun or a moon anymore, uh, you know, because it, it, it will be eternally lit by God's presence. Just the, the sheer beauty and glory and presence of God in its midst will be its light. Uh, It's it's an amazing thing. I'm reminded of kind of how the moon works, you know. Uh, You realize the moon has no light source of its own. The moon does not shine. When you see the moon at night, that is the reflection of the sun. It's the sun hitting the moon, and we are watching that reflection. Well, in many ways, that is kind of a, a a simple picture of what this will be. The, the, the light of, of God and of, of his son will be so great that it will reflect onto everything around it and there will be no need, no need for any other sort of light. You know, everything will be a light. Now, we see that, that this Jasper wall, it has, has a, 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 a high wall, uh, you know, and, and it was br- brilliant, was like, uh, or, you know, this shining was brilliant like a very precious jewel, like like jasper, uh, clear as crystal. And we're going to run into jasper later, and we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, as we kind of get into this. Um, but I, I want to just kind of discuss it a little now. This word jasper, nobody knows quite exactly what this is talking about. Um, it is one of the, probably one of three really kind of difficult jewels that are mentioned here to know exactly what it's talking about. There is a thing jasper, okay? And jasper tends to be a, a somewhat translucent, uh, you know, jewel, uh, you know, mineral that, that comes, the, the, the thing that we don't always know is it comes in many different colors. You know, it, 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 the normal one that people usually see is like a, a bluish green. However, it can come in red, red and white. It can even be black. It can be pure white. Jasper comes in many, many colors. And so no one really knows exactly what color it it is here. Some have even suggested that they're using the term jasper here. What they really mean is diamonds. Because some have suggested that diamonds weren't really discovered yet. That's probably false, uh, as Dr. Patterson points out. Actually, there's language of, of things like in India going back like three centuries before this that pro- almost surely refer to diamonds. So it's, that's probably not what's going on here. He could be referring to diamonds, but not because they didn't have another name for a diamond. Uh, but we don't know. The reality is we have no idea is, is this a diamond? Is this what we know as jasper? If it is, what is its color? it seems to be you know kind of clear and translucent uh, but it it could still have color to it just as diamonds are considered to be very clear but they also sometimes have color to them so the reality is we don't know exactly what this jasper looks like we do know it's precious it's beautiful it's it and it, it's clear it, it, and in some way it, it it is translucent all right so that seems to be what what is reflected here in 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 the in the jasper um, let's see, is there something else we want to talk about before we move on? All right, let's, let's talk about the, the, the walls here. Uh, it says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, uh, with 12 angels at the gates. All right, the 12 gates are easy enough. Uh, and as he mentions, on every side, north, south, east, west, there's three gates, you know, for the city. Uh, but it says there's 12 angels at the gates. Again, the Greek is indistinct here. It could mean there are 12 angels total, one at each gate like a century. Or it could mean that there are 12 angels at every gate. Now that seems a little silly. So most scholars believe that there's one angel at every gate, but the language could do either way. And so either one is possible. You know, so you got anywhere from... You know, 12 angels to like 144 of them. Uh, so we we don't we don't know. Um, most likely one at each gate, but again we can't you know we can't have any kind of certainty. Uh, people have also raised the question like there's no evil. So what are what are the angels there for? It's like not like they're guarding anything because nobody's going to come in. Um, but you know it 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 probably is just more symbolic you know than anything else. That idea of having a guard at place, uh, it's, it's just kind of an assurance of God is in total control, okay, uh, and, and so we see that here. Um, as I mentioned, there's three gates uh, in, in each direction. It says the wall of the city has 12 foundations. Again, we don't know exactly what that means. Um, the, the word here, foundation, is kind of like, like what you would think, a big foundation stone, uh, but is is there 12 total, you know, that, that just kind of interlock, like, you know, you have one and you have another and you have another, and they go the whole way around the city, or is there 12 at, you know, stacked up on top of one another the whole way around the city? Again, nobody knows. It, 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 the, the description is indistinct. You, there's nothing you can point to and say, no, it has to be this way. So it could be either way. Either the foundation it, you know, it's either the foundation is 12 stones high, you know, and, and, and we'll see, you know, the, the, these distinctions about it here in a second, or it could be that, you know, there's 12 total stones uh, and they just all are, are back to back, you know, to one another the whole way around the city. I kind of lean that way myself, but, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, we, we just don't know for, for certain. One thing that we do see is that the, uh, you know, the, the, these, these 12 stones have the names of the 12 apostles. I know what you're thinking. Okay, we're good on 11 of them. Judas's name certainly can't be one of them, can he? No, it's very doubtful that Judas is one of them. So, who takes his place? Is it Matthias who took his place initially, or is it the Apostle Paul? Again, we're going to have to wait and see. I wish I could tell you. You know, I, that's, that's, uh, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Um, I, all I know is in some way, uh, you know, and, and it's very apropos because Paul himself said that the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church, all built on the chief cornerstone, which was Jesus Christ. You know, and so here, literally the name of the 12 apostles, I lean toward Paul, but I don't know. You know, they will be, all around the city it's interesting that the gates themselves the 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 three gates on each side that that enter into the city will have the names of the 12 tribes of israel you know now people have made much over the 12 tribes of israel on the gates and and the apostles on the foundation many many theories all kinds of stuff some have stressed the unity of the two some have stressed that they are always two separate peoples people stress both i think honestly we make far too much out of it we don't know one thing we know for sure is all of god's people both the old testament saints the church saints and the tribulation saints will all be together in this place as the people of god they will all be part in this moment you know, Yes, the church was the bride of, of Christ. The Old Testament saints were, were, were the wives of Jehovah. But together in this place, they will all be God's people. They will all be the bride of God in this place. All of them united together in one place. And I think, honestly, that's more the meaning of the fact that they're both built into the, the building. Both the, the Old Testament saints and the new are, are, their names are on this building, some on the gates, some on the foundation. Beyond that, I, I think we try to say far too much theologically about this. You know, the one thing we know is they are all here, their names are on the building, they will be in the building, we probably ought to just leave it at that, okay? Um, I think, honestly, that's a beautiful picture. Essentially, God's promises to both the Old Testament saints and his promises to the church saints and to the tribulation saints are all fulfilled, and they are all together in this place, in unity with one another, loving and worshiping their God that unites them. I don't know about you guys, but I don't, how can it get any better than that? My gosh. You know... The, the work of, of, of missionaries all over the wor- world for centuries are culminated in this place People of every skin color every every tongue you know every background who put their faith in Christ are in this place it can't get any more beautiful than that you know it, it's it's just uh, it all leads to this. And I think that's really what that is trying to say. The apostles and, and the tribes of Israel, the, the, the ones that God used to bring salvation history to this moment, their, their names are going to be on the city. I, I think that's, that's beautiful. It's a cool description Um, let's look at verses 15 through 17. It says, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. All right, let's stop right there for a second. First thing, the thing that we see here is the city is a cube. It's as wide and long and tall as it is in all the other directions. It's cubic. Now, you know, again, we could do all kinds of speculation on why that is. The only thing that really, I think, you know, makes a whole lot of sense to me is just, that's how perfect this place is. That idea of absolute perfection, uh, of a perfect cube, you know, equidistance, all the way around, high, you know, everything, all, you know, it, it's all equidistant. It, it's a perfect cube. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, that's the only thing that, I think makes sense. Other than that, we just read far too much into this. You know, it, it just stresses the perfection of what God is building and the place that he will be with his people. The, you know, the, 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 the idea of, of the stadia here, what this works out to, this 12,000 12, stadia, in our kind of measurement, this works out to, uh, to 1,400 miles. Cubed. <laughs> let that one sink in. That's a big city. 1,400 miles in every direction, including up. Yeah, yeah, let, let that one kind of just blow your mind. You, you see why they had to go to a high place to see it? I'm not even sure Mount Everest would do the job. It's it's a good thing he was in the spirit because I don't know if he could have taken this in in any other way. It's just too big. It's 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 colossal. It's amazing, and it's meant to be that way. You know, God is trying to say this is not only perfect but it's magnificent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yep, yep. And, you know, it, it, in so many ways, like we, we kind of were discussing there you know, the other week, is, you know, that idea of where God's been heading with all of this and all the kind of pictures he shows, including what the sanctuary was like and his presence with his people, you know, we see all that kind of magnified here in this place in its kind of perfect form. This is the place that God will be with His people. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 awe-inspiring, and when you think about it, it should be awe-inspiring. That's what it's meant to be, you know. And, and so it's it's uh, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, you'd have to have a tall place just to see it. One hundred and forty-four cubits thick man, that's a thick wall. Uh, you, you know, so again, it's just the sheer uh, awesomeness of the place is kind of the what's really stressed here. The perfection of it, and the sheer awesomeness of it. Uh, you know, it's beyond our ability. I mean, I, I know, and probably in your minds right now, you're trying to envision it, but we really can't. Like, like to, to, I, I can't envision what something looks like that's that, that's that big. I, you know, I mean, I, I'm trying to picture it in my mind, but I can't capture the vastness of that, because there is no other thing we can compare that to, other than maybe an asteroid or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's just nothing there, you know, it, it, it's nothing in this earth that we can really compare this to. You know, it, it's astonishing, you know, and, and it's meant to be that. You know, that's what God is trying to say here, that this will be astonishing. It will be beyond anything that we can imagine. Look at verses uh, 18 through 21. It says, the wall was made of jasper. Like I said, we would talk about, we talked about jasper a little bit already. And the city of pure gold, as pure as glass, The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first uh, foundation was jasper. Again, jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, agate. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, ruby. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, turquoise. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. And you guys may have Slightly different translations of those words, and that's because in some of the cases, people don't know exactly how to translate what that is in our modern understanding. Most of them are fairly easy to understand, but some of them we don't really know kind of what that means in our modern, our modern way of, of, of looking at it. It says, The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. All right, let's start with verse 18. The wall was made of jasper, and we've already discussed that. We don't know exactly what color that was, but there is a major stress on the perfection of that. So whatever, you know, whatever they have in mind, whatever God has in mind here, it's, it's something that is so pure and so perfect so beautiful but yet translucent that that it is both one of the foundations and it is also what the wall is made out of, okay? Um, If it is diamond, diamond is the hardest gem on what's called the Mohs, uh, you you know, kind of scale, scale of hardness. That diamond's the hardest, okay? So if it is diamond, you know, it's the hardest one. But again, there's no guarantee that it's diamond, and there's nothing about any of these that have to be hard. Uh, you know, and I'm going to read something here from Dr. Patterson here in a minute that's going to go over these different, uh, you know, gems and and their hardnesses and things like that. And as you'll see, some of these are very hard, some are soft. So there's nothing in in you know like the hardness in particular. It's like it's not like they're all super hard. Uh, you know, it it. it Something in the color. Again, what I want to avoid with this is, my goodness, the amount of speculation I've read through the years of what the different colors mean. Look, folks, the reality is we don't even know what the colors are in some of these. So let's lay off what they mean. We don't have any idea what they mean. Let's stop assigning meaning to things that we don't have any idea about. Uh, you know, again, be a, you know, we got to be a little bit, you know, humble on this. Uh Whatever reason, God's picked the colors he's picked, uh, and and it's it's as much for the dazzling beauty as it is for anything else. It's trying to show the magnificence of what God has made, including God's people. You know, just magnificent. When God is done making everything new again, like he said he was going to do, the whole point is, when he's done making everything new, it is going to be so like just knock your socks off incredible, that there's no words really to describe it. Let me read, um, one of the things I, I, I particularly appreciate of this commentary is he gets uh, very detailed in some of these, these things. He seems to have great joy, um, you know, in, in, in some of these descriptions. Uh, and so he kind of looks up all these different things. So let me kind of read this to you. It says, in verses 19 through 21, John describes the foundation of the city walls. Each foundation is said to be decorated with all kinds of precious stones. This raises several interesting questions. First, exactly how do these foundations function together? Are the foundations layered one uh, one on top of another? Uh, Do the foundations proceed one after uh, another around the city or uh, as one great but varied foundation? The text does not provide this explanation, and we've already talked about that. The second problem relates to the stones themselves. Of the various stones, some are easily identifiable. Already the problem identifying the jasper stone has been mentioned, and, and we've talked about that. The topaz, sapphire, emerald, jacinth, uh, chrysophase, uh, uh, carnelian, amethyst, and beryl, and the chalcedony do not pose great difficulties. Sardonyx and chrysolite, however, join with the jasper stone in being more difficult to identify. Making the problem still more acute is the fact that current knowledge of mineralogy and of the various precious stones uh, identifies them on cr- criteria other than just color. and many of these stones, a much wider variety of colors than what would have been known in John's day has been chronicled. There is also a certain tendency with the more limited knowledge of John's day to identify different kinds of stone in just one way if the color was that which was thought to be the primary shade of that particular stone. Nevertheless, information can be gained based on the understandings that are available to interpreters to appreciate the magnificence and the spectacular nature of the city. After the Jasper stone is the sapphire, one of the hardest stones on the Mohs number of nine. In Greek, the word means blue, and along with the ruby, sapphire is a variation of corundum. The rubies, of course, are are under um, most conditions a, a bright, deep red, whereas the sapphire stones run the gamut from light to dark blue and sometimes even black, which is fascinating. I didn't know sapphires came in black but evidently they do. John here is most probably referring to the typical medium to dark blue stone that, oft- that, that often found with a star-like glow in the middle and spoken of as a star sapphire. The third stone is called chalcedony and is a stone belonging to a group of microcrystalline crystalline Its color is bluish white or gray and its hard li- hardness is only about six and a half to seven on the Mohs scale so in other words it's a very soft mineral okay its name comes from Chalcedon the city on the east bank of the Bosporus which became the meeting place for the critically important council of Chalcedon in AD 451. The fourth stone is is the emerald which is readily known to almost everyone with a hardness of seven and a half to eight this green stone in various shades of green also bears a Greek name, uh, but probably one that, that was borrowed from the Persians. It is also the fourth stone in the breastplate of the high priest and has been highly valued in all eras. So going back basically as far as anybody can trace, people have valued emeralds, all right? And they are various shades of green. The fifth stone, the sardonyx, seems to be a compound word for the sardius stone and an onyx. Indeed the stone is layered, sometimes dark red and white and sometimes almost brown or white. Onyx is derived from the Greek word uh, onyx which close enough which means talon or claw, but also fingernail and probably refers to the translucent quality of the stone. And I can tell you most of the time when we think of onyx in a a modern context, they are black, jet black, but translucent, okay? I actually had a a black lab named onyx. You know, I always think of that when I think of, think of the name. You know, and, and so they don't know exactly what is really being referred to here as this sardonyx because it seems to be a combination of two different words, sardius and onyx. So exactly what this looks like, nobody really knows for sure. Um, His opinion here, he's going to give his opinion most probably, John is seeing here a dark red and white layered stone. The sixth stone is carnelian, a deep red stone taking its name from the cornel, which is a type of cherry. The carnelian, a fairly well-known and highly sought stone, was often worn by someone who needed to soften his anger, since its blood red color was thought to have the mellowing effect on the wearer. So that's interesting. In the ancient world, that's what they thought of, uh, you know, of of the carnelian. The seventh stone is chrysolite. Interestingly, most of the chrysolites available in ancient, uh, in ancient and, for that matter, in modern times, come from the Red Sea island named Saint John. Of course, that name has a later origin. But the island now takes the name of the Apostle John. I thought that was just fascinating. The guy who uses it here is, you know, they gave his name to the island where they find these things, uh, like where almost all of them come from. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, the chrysolite, uh, uh, excuse me, I already kind of read that, but it, it, the chrysolite gets its name from the Greek word for gold uh, and is sometimes identified as the peridot or by its more popular name, olivine. It is not a hard stone, registering only six and a half to 7 on the Mohs scale. The eighth stone is beryl, a gold or a yellow-green stone, sometimes shading almost to yellow. The name itself, however, means green, and is usually thought to be the first stone in the fourth row of the breastplate of the high priest. The ninth stone is topaz, well known for its sparkling yellow or gold form. However, topaz is now found in smoky topaz and has a variety of colors from red-brown to pinkish-red, as well as their traditional yellow. Topaz also is mined, among other places, on the island uh, Zebregat in the Red Sea. But originally, the island carried the name of Topazos, which, of course, is where it gets gets its its name. Uh, Probably what John sees here is the rather sparkling yellow version which the ancients would have immediately identified as topaz. The tenth stone, chrysoprase, is an apple-green stone in the Chalcedonic group. The eleventh stone is jacinth, a yellow-red to reddish-brown stone normally of great brilliance and intensity, uh, also appearing in the breastplate of the high priest. The final stone of the foundation is amethyst, also well-known in the modern period. However, its origin is interesting. It it is only seven in hardness on the Mohs scale, but the most valued of all the stones in the quartz group, and it is transparent or translucent blue-violet. Its origin is of great uh, interest since the Greek word methustos means drunken. The alpha uh, privative added to the front of the word amethustos means negation, meaning not drunken. And it was the favorite stone to be worn by those who wanted to ward off the ill effects of drunkenness, which isn't that just hilarious, kind of how the ancient world thought of of things. Um, uh, uh, Accentuating the 12 foundations adorned with these stones are the 12 gates, which are described as 12 margaritae, or pearls. Each gate is said to be made of a single pearl. Picturing John's observation is somewhat difficult at this point. Since the gates of the city are never closed, perhaps the twelve giant pearls making up the gates are not swinging gates at all, but rather the equivalent of a gatehouse formation uh, with the appearance of gigantic pearls. uh, Pearls were often more valued uh, than any other stone in antiquity because of their natural unvarnished appearance as part of the life of the sea. Finally, John concludes this part of the description by observing that the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass, uh, a similar expression to what is observed in verse 18 regarding the general nature of the entire city. So look, I don't know what the stones mean, and I'm not even going to try to come up with a meaning. I do know, uh, you know, we, we have an idea what they are. And the stress seems to be more on the magnificence and the beauty of the stones than anything to do with the actual meaning of any of the stones. Uh, As he pointed out in a couple cases, the meaning of things tends to be more pagan than anything else. You know, as we saw with the stone that they thought warded off drunkenness and the stone that helped them fight their anger. Those are... You know, sometimes we get so caught up in things like that, and we look for meaning in things, uh, you know, that, that we probably spend too much time looking for. And in that case, is a lot of times we become a little bit more like the pagans than we probably really should be. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that we know for sure, and I'm not saying they don't have meaning, but I'm saying we don't know what it is. If they do, God will tell us someday. We'll just have to wait for that point. But one thing for certain They are beautiful and they're precious and they're magnificent to look at and the foundation of this city will be decorated in with these stones and it is going to be just gorgeous it's going to be mind-blowing to see it uh and and that's the real stress here you know that's what this is really all about all right we got two minutes um Let's just get started. Let's read verses 22 through the end of the chapter, uh, and we'll just cover what we can cover here. He says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and, and, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it on no day will its gates ever be shut or there will will be no night there the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life all right let's start with the fact that there is no temple and we've really kind of talked about this already but the importance of this is is what has been stressed over and over again in the last few chapters. God's dwelling place now is with His people. God is there Himself. He says, "I will be their God; they will be My people, and He will dwell with them forever." That's what the temple was for, folks. The temple was the place that man could bring their sacrifices to God, bring their prayers to God, and God would come down into the Holy of Holies and, 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 and dwell it with his people. But there was always separation there. You know, there, there was always that, that that great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else that was torn when Jesus you know, was resurrected, when Jesus died and, 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 and was resurrected. You know, that separation that was between God and man, you know, essentially died with Christ, and now this is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of that. Mankind and God will dwell together. There's no need for a temple anymore at this point. No need. Man will not have to go, you know, to a temple to try to meet with God. God will be with man all the time. It's beautiful. You know, so the temple... We, we see is, is is essentially eliminated we've already discussed this a little bit in verse 23 the city does not need the Sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the lamb is its lamp you know one of the things that Jesus said is I am the light of the world you know John said that about Jesus the light came into the world you know in and, and and that light kind of scatters darkness uh, in this case, the light of the glory of God and of his son will illuminate this. There'll never be a need for a lamp. There, they won't have to have electricity. There won't be anything like that in this place because God's presence will continually light the city. The rest we'll save for next week. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll close this out. Your assignment this week is read chapter 22. Read the whole chapter. Now, we probably won't, get the whole chapter covered. That's okay. Read the whole chapter, read it as a whole. How God sums up this book. And then we'll we'll cover these last few verses in 21 and then we'll move into 22 and and you know, if we get all of 22 covered, then we won't have to meet, you know, Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. If we don't, we'll meet that Sunday and we'll, you know, close out the book, okay? So that's your assignment. Read chapter 22. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful vision, Lord. When we think of the most beautiful things that we've ever seen, this has to just blow them away, and we just can't even fathom it. it it's, the, the description is so magnificent, we can't really wrap our minds around. And Father, that's just who you are. You are just magnificent. You are so beyond anything. Even greater than all the things that you've made, all they do is just reflect the, your beauty and your glory. And, and Father, we just love you and worship you and just give you all the praise for that. And so, Father, bless this day. Please you know, just touch our hearts this day. Help us to be drawn closer to you, to adore you more, and Lord, we just pray that you would be pleased with what we do here today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.